I want to personally invite you to join me and all the other Brock stars for this year's 13th live and in-person plant stock event outside of Asheville, North Carolina in the little town of Black Mountain. It's 1,500 acres is loaded with wildlife, trees, trails, streams. It is a nature wonderland. And what's also a wonderland are all the incredible speakers that you get to hang with all weekend long, like Jane and Ann Esselstyn, Dr. Will Bolshewitz of Fiberfueled, Carly Bodrug, Miss Plant U, Dr. Gemma Newman is over from the UK. We have Dr. Don Musalem from the Mayo Clinic, John Mackey, the ex-CEO of Whole Food Market Stores, myself, Brian Hart, and a special appearance by the Plant Bros. Here's the kicker. All these Brock stars are there from Friday till Sunday, and they want to rub elbows with all of you whether it's over buffets of Plant Strong Fair for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, whether it's going on an afternoon hike, a swim, pickleball, frisbee golf, kickball, cornhole, dancing, we're having live music. It's all there in this fun weekend extravaganza that we affectionately call Plant Stock. Simply go to liveplantstrong.com and then click on Plant Stock 2024. And grab yourself a ticket before they sell out. See you there. If there's one key element to my success in eating a plant-strong diet for all these years, it's my breakfast. I start every single day with Rip's Big Bowl Cereal. It's a concoction that I created to fuel my performance as a professional triathlete going back 32 years. It's commercially available at Whole Foods Market or on Amazon, or you can make your own mixing a quarter cup of raw old-fashioned oats, a quarter cup Ezekiel 4-9 nuggets, a quarter cup bite-sized shredded wheat, and a quarter cup Uncle Sam's toasted cereal. After adding chia seeds and fruit, I then hose it down with oat milk. Lately, my big bowl has taken a turn for the better ever since the Nutramilk came into my life. It's a super efficient, high-speed blender designed to make alternative milks in less than two minutes. I take great pride in making my own oat milk now, and I can't believe how it's freshened up my breakfast bowl. You can grab one too. Visit thenutramilk.com and use the code PLANTSTRONG for a $50 discount and free shipping. This episode of Plan Strong is for anybody out there who is struggling and for whatever reason feels that they're not worthy of being the healthiest version of themselves, that they're not worthy of being loved or having the, the connections that they want in life. I want to introduce you to a very special person in my life, and that's Adam Sud. He is the most genuine, authentic beacon of hope that I have met in a long, long time. Uh, he speaks with an incredible amount of candor about his personal battles with 
Adderall addiction, rampant obesity, and really insidious, terrible self-loathing. And then he has the ability to shine a bright and beautiful, inspiring light on what he did and what anybody out there can do and what's 100% possible through a a plant-based lifestyle and loving yourself. I mean, here's a guy who was once buckling under excessive weight, uh, a multitude of disease states, a guy who is now down almost 200 pounds and is 100% medication-free. Today, I'm going to speak with Adam about the headspace that's needed to make the change. We talk about shame and the inner dialogue that we play over and over again in our minds and the grace that you need to give yourself in making these small yet very important first steps. Adam shares how his success was simply a series of seven-day experiments, something that we at Engine 2 believe in very strongly. In fact, our Bronx firefighter, Joe Inga, has stopped and started this lifestyle many times over the last six years, as perhaps have many of you. Well, I want you to know that this conversation is for you. I hope that every Jane and every Joe that's out there will be inspired by Adam's willingness to walk through the pain, to share his personal suffering, and then demonstrate how he consistently made his next choice the right choice again and again and again, day after day, week after week, year after year. And that is why he is where he is today. Adam always says that the simplest change on your fork can have the most profound impact on your life. And you're going to hear why. May we all have the ability to jump out of bed at 4 a.m. like Adam because we are so over the moon excited to have our morning bowl of oatmeal. Let's get this episode rolling. This has been a long time in the making. A long time. Like like nine years, 10 years, something like that. You better than anybody that I've encountered over the last, really over the course of the last 20 years, have transformed yourself and put yourself in a position of just completely turning <laughs> turning around <laughs> your life yeah, and going from somebody that was headed for trouble to somebody that is doing some amazing good in the world Thank you. And, and helping people. And I think finds joy in every day that you're alive on the world, on this world, yeah. in this world, helping people and, and doing all that. So, so I want this episode. Yeah. I don't want to so much visit your story because I know that it's you've been you, done. You've done yeah. that a, yeah. a fair amount and you've accrued an amazing amount of, of knowledge, sure. not only personally, but also by being a health coach. Yeah. And so I, I just like for you to impart that today. And yeah. I think I want to frame this up. Um, kind of what does it take to be ready for change? Sure. Yeah. Right. Because, yeah. So let's go back for a second. Okay. Let, let's start with this. Yeah. You came to the immersion yeah. in 2010. Mm-hmm. You heard 
all these amazing speakers. You heard Dick Beardsley, our motivational speaker, yeah. who had a brush with, with, uh, with addiction, with pain pills. But you had not yet, I guess you'd say, hit rock bottom, or sure. you, weren't, you weren't ready to ask for help yet. That's right, yeah. And it took a little while longer. So what, what was it, when was it, that you feel like you were ready for change? Yeah, you know, I, I went to the, uh, the immersion, and you know, it's not that, no, that none of it made sense to me. It's not that what I was hearing wasn't something that spoke to me as an individual, as a human, my core values, all these sorts of things. But I was, I was in such a painful place. Uh, my life was such a painful place to be, uh, to show up and, and exist authentically that um, I was not ready and willing to give up what was allowing me to escape that life on a daily basis. And that was my substance abuse. The health, all those things were were miserable. You know, my weight, my you know, mm-hmm. yet yet undiagnosed diabetes and heart disease. It, it none of that mattered. It, that was not motivation for me. And, and I'll talk about it later. How I don't think negative consequences motivate anybody. I was not willing to give up what allowed me to escape a life that was just too painful a place to be. Um, until about two years after that. And so, and so, what was it that you were doing uh, to escape? I was doing. Uh, copious amounts of stimulants and opiates. So I would get up every single day, and as soon as I woke up, I would eat something and pop Adderall. Um, I was doing upwards of 450 milligrams in a 24-hour period. And what's what's like a, a normal prescribed amount? Uh, it's between 5 and 30 milligrams a day. 5 and 30. And I was doing upwards of 450 in a day. I, I was doing on a regular basis, 120 milligrams at a time. Anybody who knows the Adderall and, you know, knows what the recreational use of Adderall is, that number is beyond astronomical. Yeah. Um, I was also, that would require me to, uh, take painkillers, opiates, uh, because after four or five days without sleeping and being on that amount of, uh, of amphetamine, you enter a, a state of psychosis where you see things, you hear things that aren't happening, um, you, you're not really in control of, of how you're thinking. Um, and um, in order to get myself to fall asleep, that's really the only way to get out of it. Is you, you just got to put an end to the whole situation is I'd take painkillers um, that would make me so lethargic that I was like, all right, I'm done. I'm going to go to bed. Yeah. Okay. So you were doing that. You were also, if I'm not mistaken, you were a fast food oh yeah junkie absolutely because i would get you know enough adderall that could last me six days um and uh after that i would have to wait until i could find some more you know i would pretty much buy as much as i could from anyone who was selling or scam as many doctors as i could to get as much as i could from the pharmacies but when that dried up fast food was my answer because it allowed me to again escape this life that showing up for and being in my authentic version of myself was just too painful a place for me to exist. Mm -hmm. And fast food was a quick way to numb myself up. Mm -hmm. And uh, I would eat, you know, four breakfast tacos for breakfast, two McDonald's supersized double quarter pounders for lunch, and then hit Whataburger for their breakfast on their, uh, their honey barbecue chicken strip sandwich meal right after lunch. And then Super, you know, what do you call it? The uh, extra large pizza from Papa John's at night with a side of the chicken strips and then typically go back to Whataburger again in the, in the middle of the night for their breakfast on a bun sandwiches. And Well, and I, and I, you know, I remember when you told me that, you know, you were 
really uh, indulging in the fast food. It wasn't until I saw the video yeah. that your mother took, uh, I think it was after your suicide attempt. It was, yeah. That I was like, wow. It's it, a pretty shocking yeah. You know, yeah. 20 seconds. I mean, there, there isn't a open space on the floor, on a countertop, on a table that isn't strewn with different fast food. Garbage. G- garbage, yeah. packages, you know, um, you know, 32 ounce, you know, uh, yeah. you know, Cokes, Pepsis, you know, Mountain Dews, whatever. It was shocking. Yeah. And, and that's how I lived my life every single day was just, you know, uh, that couch that's in the in the video with the blanket on or the bed sheet on that's where i lived basically on that couch um my windows were boarded up with with you know boxes with uh cardboard um because i didn't want people seeing in and i didn't want to see out yeah what caused you to be in so much pain it's a disconnection from what's truly meaningful in my life you know i didn't understand nor nor did i have the uh the willingness to allow myself to feel and know that it's okay, whatever I was feeling. And I felt utterly broken as a human. I thought, I, I am this broken person, this, essentially this machine with broken parts that cannot be fixed. Uh, I feel this way, the way that I feel, felt the pain, the anger, uh, the, the sadness, the loneliness was a symptom of my broken part that no matter what medication I took was not fixable. I felt completely disconnected from people from ever reconnecting to a purpose in life. And um, being out in the world reminded me how disconnected I was. It's a painful thing to be with people and lonely at the same time. And to feel like you have nothing of value for anyone at all. And if at anything, you are a drain on people just by being near them. So that that kind of makes you want to board up in your room, be a fast food addict, uh, and, and kind of just be a hermit. It made me want to hide from life. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and I did that really well for about five years. So at what point then let's revisit this. Sure. At what point, what was there like a, a moment when you decide, okay, I, I'm ready for change and yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to embrace love as opposed to fear and hate. Can, yeah. can you talk about that? So August 21st of 2012 was oh. the day. Uh, that's the day I, com- I attempted suicide. Um, it was, I think, you know, midnight ish. You know, I, I, I recently developed erectile dysfunction, um, which to me was just like more indication of just this absolute broken body and person that I was and that things were never going to get better. They were only going to get worse. And being alive at that point hurt enough to the point where it was barely tolerable. Um, I mean, it hurt physically. It hurt emotionally. It hurt spiritually. Existing was just pain. And how old were you? I was 30. Okay. And, um, you should be in your prime. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, um, I, it, this wasn't something that I had planned. It wasn't like, all right, August 21st, 2012, midnight, I'm going to kill myself. It was, it was just a, this overwhelming realization that I needed to remove myself from the equation, uh, because I did, sure didn't have an answer to it. What had once been a solution had now become an overwhelming and inescapable problem. And I didn't, couldn't make sense of it. How could something that for one point in my life was the greatest solution I had ever found to how I live my life. And that was Adderall. That was that, Adderall. That, that made you feel like you were the person everybody wanted you to be. Yeah. I mean, how could something that at one point was my perfect solution become something that it was such an out of control and unanswerable problem 
a problem that I, for whatever reason, could never figure out. How could I sit there and go and say in my head, I am really struggling with substance abuse and I'm probably going to die from this. And at the same time, be unwilling to give it up because for whatever reason, I would tell myself this is the best thing for me to do. And it, it, it drove me to the point where I just need to remove myself from the equation, uh, stop being a burden on my family, right. stop being a burden on myself. And uh, I attempted suicide by overdose and um, found myself waking up um, on the floor in a puddle of my own vomit and a pile of garbage, like you mentioned in that video. Trying to describe the feeling of dying is something I don't think I'll ever be capable of verbalizing. Um, the moment when I realized that I was overdosing and tried to stand up and felt like my body was just not mine anymore. Uh, like my, I remember the right side of my body cramping uh, like so bad that I literally like buckled over to the right. Um, and I noticed everything starting to go black. And there was a moment right as it happened where it's like, this is the last moment. This is my last moment of existence mm -hmm. here in this room with no one around. And just this fear of not waking up. And uh, when I did, uh, I realized that that is not at all what I want came to this very clear realization when I, when I regained consciousness that, you know, unless I was really willing to say, I got to change everything about the way that I move through the world, uh, this is going to happen again, whether on my own uh, actions or by accident. But if I continue living that way, every single day of my life would be a suicide attempt. So, so, so that was kind of what allowed you to realize that you, that you were ready for change, that yeah. you came that close to basically... Yeah. To, to, it was to, a, it was a dying. recognition of how much my family mattered to me. Mm -hmm. And is that then when you asked for help? Yeah, that's when I called my mom and my dad, and as quickly as they answered, I just you know said I need help. So is it fair to say then that that's the first time that you maybe to your family acknowledged that you had an addiction? Yeah, and that um, I mean it's not like they didn't know. I but yeah, yeah, but uh, you know I never even said it out loud to myself alone. Right. Never, ever allowed my ears to hear the sound. I'm a substance abuse addict. And you even, you even have to, have said because you're obviously one of. Uh, you have now, in your own right, become one of the greatest motivational speakers on this topic. You know, to me, uh, on the planet. And at our immersions, you you talk about how you were at the Engine Two yeah. program in 2010, and you wanted so badly to. I did to share with Dick Beardsley. Yeah. I wanted Some, so badly. Ben, what happened? Can you share? I literally was, he had finished giving his presentation. He was, there was a table set up for him with his books, and he was signing people's books. He was talking to them, giving them hope, you know, everything that he had learned in his journey back from, you know, his low point. And um, here I see a person that I know 100%, with 100% confidence. Mm -hmm. If I go up to this person and admit I am suffering from substance abuse and I'm scared and I need help, this individual would never judge me for it. And my feet were frozen to the floor. I couldn't take another step closer to him. And I can remember wanting, I waited till everyone was done. And he was standing there with his wife. And I said, you know, just say his name. Just usher him over. You know, start talking to him about anything. Maybe I'll build up enough confidence to just say, I need, I need help. I couldn't. Mm -hmm. uh, did, it, did you find yourself... Because I know whenever I hear Dick Beardsley's story, yeah, I'm, I find myself just you know, 
crying like a little baby. He's amazing. Were, I mean, I'm wondering, though, yeah. were you in, in, in a position at that point in time in 2010 where you heard his message enough to where, like, were you, were you emotionally impacted by it? No. Or, no. I okay. didn't allow myself to be. Uh, okay. I didn't allow myself to be emotionally impacted by anybody at that point. Okay. Um, okay. I heard his story. Yeah. I heard myself in his story. Yeah. And I said, well, you know, yeah, but he's not me. Right. So, you know, I can, I can, I can get control yeah. of this thing and it's not a problem. Right. You know? So you talked just a little earlier about how much self-loathing and self-hatred you had. Yeah. Can you describe like some of those times when you would look in the mirror and, and, yeah. and just, uh, what you saw and what you would do? I would come home from shopping at a place called casual mail XL, which is a, a, a clothing store for people who are plus size and, or tall. Um, and, uh, it was the only place I could go where I could get pants because I had a 50 inch waist and I would come home anytime I would be out in public where I noticed people looking at me um, because it's quite a thing to be that's you know that sick and that obviously messed up uh, to where people like they stare at you but they don't want to have anything to do with you um, and I stare in the mirror I would stand in front of my mirror and I'd take off my shirt and I would do to myself what other people were doing I would allow myself to be that person and go look at you, you know, you're pathetic. Um, you know, I didn't recognize myself, let alone, you know, want to acknowledge that this is who I was. And so I'd literally start beating myself. I would punch myself in the stomach as hard as I could over and over again. And every time I hit myself, I would shout, I hate you. You're worthless. I would say to myself what I believed everyone else was thinking about me. And thinking that that's what, how I would motivate myself to change. That if I hated myself enough, that I would, I would want to get out of that situation. And it would, it would crush me. I would fall on the floor, you know, swollen red, um, crying. Because, you know, at the end of the day, it didn't matter how much I hated myself or how much I, you know, beat myself. I was never going to win a battle fueled by hate. Mm-hmm. So... You obviously yeah. went to the other side. Yeah. And talk about that fuel. So I got diagnosed in rehab with type 2 diabetes, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, erectile dysfunction, bipolar disorder, mm-hmm. suicidal depression, anxiety disorder, sleep disorder, and attention deficit disorder. I remember being really, really disgusted with myself and, and, and sort of heartbroken because here I had this idea of what it meant to go into rehab was, you know, they take you off your substances, you get off your substances and then you go home and la di da di da it's all good. And, you know, that whole idea had just been completely shattered because I knew in that moment that sobriety in and of itself was not a, a path to health or life for me, that I was literally going to have to change the way that I moved through the world, the way that I thought through the world, the way that I looked at myself, the way that I viewed myself. Um, how I talked about myself, everything had to change or nothing would. And um, I had a f- conversation with my dad where I you know, told him I was you know, so upset by this that I was leaving. And you know, he, he imparted some wisdom onto me that, that really radically, you know, it, it, it was profound. You know, he told me, he said, Adam, you know, okay, well, let's just, I'm not going to say that you do have heart disease. Not saying that that's the case, but let's just talk about if if you did, you know, you attended this health immersion with Rip Esselstyn, and and you learned that these conditions are a lot of times reversible, and you not only learned that they are, but you learned how to reverse them. And he says to me, if there's things about your life that you don't like, and you can do something about it, then it isn't a problem. And if there are things about your life that you don't like, and there's nothing you can do about it, it's not a problem. It's just the way things are. And maybe we can change the way we look at those so it's no longer something that 
you know, causes you pain and discomfort on a daily basis. And this really hit me because I had this understanding in that moment that one, if I'm the cause, I get to be the solution. And that focusing on the problem was only going to make the problem a daily part of my life. Mm -hmm. And that the fear and the hatred that I had for myself had always driven me towards behaviors that were self-destructive because they fueled the parts of me that made me feel miserable, that made me feel uncomfortable, that reminded me on a daily basis of my disconnection from things that were truly meaningful in my life. And I, I told myself, okay, yeah, I have heart disease. I don't want heart disease. I have diabetes. I don't want diabetes. And I'm obese. I don't want to be obese. Uh, and that I nearly died from substance abuse. And to be honest, I really didn't want to die. Why not? What was it about my life that I loved enough, yeah. that I was going to be willing to do whatever it took. Essentially, what was I going to do to be willing to be comfortable being uncomfortable in order to take charge of my life and reconnect to what's truly meaningful? I decided in that moment that it was no longer going to be about what was the matter with me, but what mattered to me that was going to fuel my change. People are never motivated by negative consequences. If negative consequences stop people from being unhealthy, there wouldn't be a single unhealthy person on the planet. Mm. Uh, what humiliations, uh, what negative consequences have people who are sick not already endured? What have they not already experienced? This is not, in my opinion, what fuels long-term change. It's always love. It's how do I find a way to positively impact my life so that I fall in love with the process of reconnecting myself to what is truly meaningful to me in this life. Mm. Because human beings have this incredible need to bond. We'll bond with people, we'll bond with purpose, we'll bond with the goings on of our world around us. And when those bonds are severed, those bonds are the ones that are truly meaningful to us, that give us meaning in life, that give us this sense of, I have something of value to offer others and others understand that value. There's a great quote from one of Johann Hari, he's a British journalist, one of his books, he says, loneliness is not the physical absence of people. It's the sense that you have nothing of value to offer anyone you care about. Mm. And uh, being able to reconnect to those meaningful bonds, because those bonds, when they're severed, we will bond with anything that gives us pleasure, whether it's food, whether it's drugs, whether it's gambling, it doesn't matter. And the stronger that those bonds become, the further disconnected we feel from ever being able to reconnect to what's truly meaningful in life. Mm. And I did not want to focus on what was disconnecting me. I wanted to focus on what was going to connect me back to those truly meaningful bonds. Mm -hmm. And was that scary too? Yeah, it was. Because it was also in the, in the it was talking to myself in a way I hadn't, I hadn't given myself permission to mm -hmm. in maybe ever. Mm -hmm. um, I had to you know, really learn the sense that, you know, these feelings that I was having, uh, the, uh, the anger, the anxiety, uh, the frustration, the, uh, you know, the, the loneliness, that these are completely reasonable responses to life. They are healthy human feelings and that they occur for a reason, that they mean something, and that I didn't want to try to live a life where I didn't experience those things. Uh, those along with like urges and temptations and cravings. I wanted to be able to live a life every single day where when those things happened, I was okay with it. Mm. Because to deny those experiences is to, not, to deny a part of my humanity. And I didn't want to miss out on what might be some of what is best about being human. And I, I started to, you know, incorporate this lifestyle. 
um, the plant-based lifestyle and, and really allow myself the space and compassion to willingly feel these things and not judge myself for them, to not define myself by what I struggle with. I no longer said I am angry or I am sad or I am frustrated. I gave myself the permission to How'd say- How'd you reframe it? I feel angry. Uh-huh. I feel sad. Uh-huh. I feel lonely. And then is it more is it more just temporary? It's like it is, more fleeting? Because then it's an observation. Mm-hmm. I now become a witness to my feelings rather than just a participant. Mm-hmm. And when I, I can observe them, I can see the message that my body is trying to tell me about how I'm living my life, whether I'm disconnecting from something truly meaningful or I'm connecting greater to something truly meaningful in my life. Mm-hmm. And once the recognition that like, hey, look, I'm not a machine with broken parts. Uh, one of the biggest things that helped me understand that was the pleasure trap. Right. Was reading the pleasure trap. I would stand in front of the cabinet and look at my two options would be fruity pebbles and oatmeal. And don't get me wrong, I liked oatmeal at the time, but I freaking love fruity pebbles. And here I am knowing hmm. that fruity pebbles is going to make me worse. It's going to make my health worse. I'm going to get sick and I'm going to, you know, possibly die. I also know that oatmeal was going to help me get healthier. It's going to help reverse these conditions. And so I'd sit there thinking to myself why in the world knowing these two things where i sit here wanting fruity pebbles mm-hmm. why why can't this be a matter of intellect and will why can't i just want to do it know how to do it and that's it yeah i think i think you need to just remove the fruity pebbles from the equation you shouldn't I have wish, them in the cupboard <laughs> i wish i could have but i was in sober living they were for the rest oh, of the <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah 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 because yeah. i was in sober living at the time right right and um and i read the pleasure trap and what I learned from this book was that there actually is a biological mechanism right. that was compelling me to seek out pl- uh, behaviors that created the greatest amount of pleasure because pleasure was my body's way of knowing that I'd done something biologically beneficial. Right. And so when I ate Fruity Pebbles, when I did 120 milligrams of Adderall at a time, my body would respond by going, <laughs> bravo. Right. I don't know what that was, yeah. but it's got to be the best thing you've ever done for yourself. So keep doing it. And this gave me this understanding that the reason why I wanted to do something, continue doing something that I knew was destructive to me, uh, wasn't because I was broken. Right. It's because my body was doing exactly what it was supposed to do. And the frustration of it came from me not being willing to allow myself to feel the frustration and be okay with it. Mm. To feel the anger of having to battle this, you know, comfortable with being uncomfortable situation. If I'm angry about it and I participate in the anger alone, I'm going to be angry and it's probably going to lead me to do things I don't want to do. Mm-hmm. If I witness the anger and willingly say, it's okay, this is a reasonable response to the situation given how I've been living my life. This anger is not the problem. This anger means something. This is a highly evolved sig- signal that is arising for a reason to let me know something really meaningful about how I move through the world. Mm-hmm. Why don't I listen to it and move through it rather than avoid it? Mm-hmm. And in doing so, you know, I was really able to completely reshape how I view myself, uh, my health, and, you know, this whole self-love, self-acceptance thing. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I heard, I've heard you talk about how, like, every day we have maybe, was it 60,000 thoughts, yeah. right? And of those 60,000, like, some are, some are positive, some are negative, yeah. and... 90% of them are negative. 90% of them are, yeah. are negative. Right. Do you think that's how it is for most people? Yeah, that is, that's the average statistic. And, and so why do you think, you think that's just kind of where we are today in society? Yes, or is, yeah. I do. I think that we have a culture that has a profound willingness not to want to understand pain and discomfort. We have a, a culture that has created the greatest sense of disconnection that it's ever been in the history of Earth, in the history of, of life on Earth. 
We're the most disconnected species of animal that has ever been. We've walled ourselves behind concrete and glass. We have separated ourselves from the earth. We wear shoes. We don't even allow our feet to touch the earth. Concrete is not the earth. Yeah. We, we're so disconnected. We're hiding our, behind screens. We're so disconnected from our authentic way of being that by the time we're capable, uh, cognitively capable of questioning our place in the world, we feel profoundly lost and disconnected from something that we can't understand. And that's because, you know, we have this, you know, yeah, yeah. social media stuff that, you know, uh, again, this, this, what I'm about to say comes from Johan Hari, you know, if you look at the rise of social media, it happened in the late 90s and the early 2000s when junk values were on the rise. You know, people were starting to want to have this greater sense of reconnection. People were, have, had less friends than they've ever had in the history of the United States. The number of people that you could call on right. in, the, uh, in time of need had decreased to zero on average from it was close to 50 or like 10 or 25 and 50 years ago. Now it's zero. And here comes social media with what people would appear like a reconnection. But it's not. It's a parody of connection. And so that greater fueled this lack of understanding of ourselves and how we best move through the world. So, yeah, I think so. I think that we live in a society that values disconnection. And so people are, they are absolutely lonely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> okay. So you're, um, you're reaching for yeah. the oatmeal instead of the, you know, yeah. the, the, what was it? The Fruity Pebbles? The Fruity Pebbles. <laughs> the yeah. Fruity Pebbles. You're okay being comfortably uncomfortable because you realize that, you know, you're going to override these, these pleasure trap signals that are firing right in your brain. And I'll be willing to be angry about it. And I'll be willing to say, I'm feeling angry. I'm feeling angry. It'll pass. It'll pass. It's temporary. And so, and so you did this at rehab for what, eight months? Uh, so I was in sober living at that time, okay. which is uh, rehab was in a residential treatment center. Rehab was in there for 10 months. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I got up every single day and I told myself that what I'm going to do when I make this plate of food is prepare an act of self-love and self-care. Ah. That this is my first affirmation of positive change for the day. And it's something that I can restate to myself with every single plate. And, and how, did you, how did you come to this... Um, you know, realization that every time that you're, every meal is yeah. an act of self-love, self-worth, self-acceptance. How did yeah. you, how did you, like, was it just the whole process? Or? It was, it was a lot of things. You know, I started to, to read a lot of Buddhist, uh, there's a, there's a, a Buddhist recovery uh, system that's called um, uh, Against the Stream. Um, it's also called Dharma Punks. Um, and I really got into studying Buddhism and in, in Buddhism, you know, I, I am the cause of all my suffering and the cause of suffering is, uh, you know, attachment. Mm. And, I, you know, I was like, hey, you know what? Who I am in this moment is only who I am in this moment. And I am in control of everything that I think, say and do in this moment, which means that change is 100 percent within my power because change only happens now because now is the only time I have a choice. So I'm going to choose right now to do something that I know at the end of the day will make me healthier than I was the day before. And that gave me the sense that every single day when it comes to my physical health, I am in control. I have to wait for nothing or no one, and I have to answer to nothing or no one except myself and how I feel about how I'm uh, moving through this world. And that gave me that sense of self-worth. That gave me that empowerment to know that I had literally 
can create an environment for positive change on a daily basis where no matter how I feel, no matter, you know, what happens to me, no matter if I get angry all day long or if I'm feeling a lot of joy all day long, at the end of the day, I know I will be healthier than I was the day before. That's empowering. And, you know, within three months, my diabetes and heart disease were completely gone. Um, I remember seeing my endocrinologist when he told me that my A1C was that of a non-diabetic. And, you know, in that moment was really, you know, gave me that for the first time in a long time, that feeling of self-worth. And that made me feel like every single thing that I went through was, was creating a life for me that was really about making me the person I want to save. Yeah. Well, I can remember when I, I met you again at Whole Foods and I didn't recognize you because you'd lost over a hundred pounds at that point in time. And also, um, I remember inviting you up to my office. You came up there. And I just remember witnessing one of the most humble, grateful, kind of en- enlightened you know, people that I'd met oh, in a long you. time. It was, yeah. it was really remarkable. Well, and it's interesting because I wasn't even there expecting to see no. you. Yeah. Uh, and I saw you and I was like, this is my opportunity. I really have to make amends. You, know, you invited me up to your office and... You know, really what I was wanting to do was to let you know that I, you know, I was, I'm sorry for, mm. you know, not only not taking you seriously and giving you the respect that you deserved as a person uh, and as a, as a human being, uh, but also threatening the longevity of your program by bringing drugs with me and being high every single day at your program. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I wanted to apologize to you and to thank you for everything. Mm. Um, I expected nothing from you. But, you know, it was in that moment that I think that, uh, you know, you said, why don't you come and share your story, which I had never done before. And I was like, I'll do it. (laughs) I'm terrified, but I'll do it. Um, And now and now you're just an absolute pro. I mean, you were I remember you were so nervous and you were were pacing back and forth. You probably didn't sleep the night before. (laughs) And now you're like, just, you know, no big deal. It's uh, just another day in the park. It really has been like the greatest pleasure in my life to uh, to be able to impart, you know, anything that I can, they can help somebody reconnect to their authentic self. So can you talk a little bit about process over results? Yeah. Um, um, so, yeah. you know, I work with mastering diabetes. I work with engine two and I work with whole foods market. And, you know, one of the things we, that I do is I work specifically with diabetics and people will say, Oh, so, you know, obviously your goal is to help people reverse diabetes. No, I don't help anybody reverse diabetes. They do that themselves. My goal is to help them fall in love with what it what helps them reverse diabetes. So for example, um, my goal when I started this was not to reverse my diabetes, reverse my heart disease, lose weight. I wanted to find a way of living that allowed me to reconnect with my authentic self. And that included a diet that if I fell in love with it, would reverse heart disease, diabetes, and obesity. So think about it, you're an athlete, um, uh, and you've been, I don't know how many races you've, you've done, and uh, I like to run. And the thing is that when you start a race, is it even possible to see the finish line? Uh, usually not. No. <laughs> is it ever necessary to see it to get there? It's never necessary to see the finish line, even know what it looks like to get to the finish line and cross it. The only thing that you can do is focus on the road in front of you, what you can see, your pace, your step, your breath. Hmm. You fall in love with that process and you'll reach any finish line you want. And the same thing goes with making lifestyle changes in regards to food. If I can help somebody fall in love with the experience of eating plants and what it does to reconnect them to what makes them feel alive, mm-hmm. they're, they're set. 
because no matter how long it takes, it's going to happen. And we're so result focused oh. as a culture that we forget the results only come from the process. That's the only thing that gets you there. So is it more important to fall in love with the process or the result? If you fall in love with the process, you're going to do this for the rest of your life. Yeah. And the rest of your life is yeah. relevant. Everything else is just a byproduct that's of right. you falling in love with the result. Yeah. I mean, falling in love with the process. <clears throat> that's, that's, that's awesome. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember when I started, I was 37 <clears throat> days sober. I'd just gotten out of rehab and I told myself, all right, well, I got to go plant-based for the rest of my life and be sober for the rest of my life. I can't do that. Mm. And then I, you know, I was like, well, wait, it's not even necessary for me to do that. It's not even necessary for me to worry about that. What I need to do is be able to do this for seven days. Mm. Because that is, if I can't do that, I can't do any of it. And the beauty of the seven days is that I could plan for it. I could track it. I could, you know, I knew what I could see. And I would do seven days at a time. And at the end of those seven days, I would see what, what, I, what worked and what I found joy in doing. Uh, I would also see what didn't work or what I didn't find joy in doing. And those things I would replace with something that was still in alignment with what I was trying to achieve. And I would go another seven days. It's just a series of seven-day experiments that went on and on and on for the last seven years that have crafted this way of moving through the world. And to this day, like people can ask me, are you, you going to be plant-based for the rest of your life? I am yeah. plant-based yeah. right now. Yeah. That's how I live my life. And I don't need to know the rest of my life to know how, who I am, what I am in this moment. Yeah. I'd say there's a pretty good chance you'll go the rest of your life. Oh, you've, already, you've already made it 383 uh, consecutive seven-day strings. At Engine 2, we believe exactly what Adam just shared with you. Adopting this lifestyle should be a series of seven-day experiments. I want you to throw away this notion that you've got to do this for the rest of your life. This can be ridiculously daunting, and I want you to just join us in breaking it down to one week at a time. This is the model that we use for our Rescue 10X Behavioral Change Program, where for 10 weeks, Engine 2 coaches, including Adam Sud, will guide participants through a series of 10 consecutive seven-day challenges, each week ingraining the simple daily habits that are needed to sustain the plant-strong lifestyle over the long haul. And we do this by focusing, again, on the week ahead. I know this can be hard, especially if, like Adam, You've got a fair amount of repair work to do, but having a supportive tribe helps lighten the load as well as keep you accountable. Rescue 10X meets weekly for live video conference calls, has a special workbook with exercises to help you uncover your why and really dial in this lifestyle, as well as teaching you all the tips and tricks to make plant-based cooking and eating that much easier. Sign up at engine2.com and use the code PLANTSTRONG for a $50 discount. Our next 10-week tribe starts very soon. I've, I've lost 200 pounds and reversed all, I got off all my psych meds in a year, all my antidepressants, my mood stabilizers, sleeping medications, anxiety medications, ADHD medications. And are you currently on any medications right no, now? No, I'm on no medications. I haven't been on medications for six years. Yeah. Does it, how does that feel? It's interesting because you'd think that that would be like the most profound thing would be like getting off the medication. Yeah. And it was just like, it was just another step in the process for me. It wasn't really like, oh, I have made it. I'm off my meds. It was more like, yeah, that's expected. Well, then yeah. what, well, 
What, what's been the greatest step in the process? The greatest step in the process uh, was honestly, there's a few moments in my life that are like the, the, these key moments that really signified to me that I'm, I'm truly in alignment with how I want to move through the world. The first is uh, in 2015. You know, I was back here in Austin. It was right before I came to see you, actually. Um, and uh, my dad had asked me to go for a run with him. And my dad never asked me to go for a run with him. He's been a solo runner his whole life. And uh, the only times he would ever ask me to go for a walk with him before was when he wanted to talk to me about shit that was going wrong in my life. And it was always very in, in, invasive. It felt like an invasion of me. And uh, we're running over, we're on Talent Lake. We're running over that little bridge. The footbridge? The footbridge. Yeah. Uh, not, not, the one by, not the one by the high school, but the other one, the little wooden one. Okay, yep. yeah. Yep. And we're going over it, and I look over at my dad, and he's just in step, in, 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 uh, in his pace running. And we're not saying anything to each other, and I had this clear understanding that I was with him because, not because he wanted to try and fix anything with me, but because he wanted to share a moment of running with his son. Sure. And that moment is one of the most like surreal moments of my life. Uh, because I knew in that moment my dad just wanted to be with me. Yeah. Well, you know, as someone who knows your father, knows your family, your your father is a very uh, amazing, special man. He is. Yeah. 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 Um, so that's that's one moment. That's number one. Uh, number two is actually before that. Uh, I my sister and I weren't talking for pretty much two years. Um, the only time we would ever talk is if we found ourselves at family events together and she would, you know, we'd have to do these courtesies and I don't blame her for it at all. Um, and, uh, I got, I, I don't do the AA thing, but I find it important that every year that I get, uh, another year of sobriety, um, even though I typically don't count days is to go there and receive a chip. My first year of sobriety, I went to an AA meeting. And for whatever reason, my parents weren't able to come out. My brother wasn't able to come out because he was back in school. And my sister was in the front row. And uh, she handed me my chip. You know, um, we hugged and um, it was really special. And now my sister and I are incredibly close. Well, with your, with, with your sister, yeah. I know you've talked about how um, she, she at, at times, she was... One of your family members, it was always the hardest on you. I think. Yeah. If I'm not mistaken. Oh yeah. 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 I mean, she, she's never held back. Yeah. That's one of the things I really love about Jules is she will tell it like it is. Yeah. You know, she basically was like, you know, I can't talk to you if you're on drugs. Right. Um, and I get it. It wasn't being mean. It wasn't because she didn't want to be with me. It's because it was probably really terrifying mm. to know how messed up I was and to realize it was getting worse. And then one day she could wake up and I wouldn't be there. Third. Third. Bobby. Bobby, my twin brother, in 2016 was 290 pounds-ish, um, had diabetes, was very depressed. And uh, I asked him if he would be willing to move in with me in Santa Monica and live my lifestyle for six months. Um, I told him that, you know, look, this is only about you know, the behavior and how you're moving through the world. This is nothing to do with who you are as a person. And in fact, it's because I love who you are as a person that I want, I want to offer this, you know, thing to you. I want, I want you to move in with me. And he agreed. And, uh, we met with Dr. Matt Letterman and, uh, you know, got his blood For those work of you done. That don't know Matt Letterman's the physician in Forks Over Knives. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And in, uh, three weeks, 
or six weeks, Bobby's blood glucose was completely in a healthy range. So his diabetes was completely, his numbers were completely healthy, unmedicated. Right. And in three months, he had lost 50 pounds. Uh, he's lost close to 100 pounds as of this point. But what's really amazing is I got to watch him connect to what is truly meaningful for him in life. And that's this being a voice for the voiceless, being a real uh, ad- activist in the uh, you know, animal rights movement mm-hmm. and um, you know, uh, working with some incredible people like Sean Munson, uh, the director of Earthlings. And he comes up to me and he says, Joseph Campbell, who's an uh, American philosopher and an author, says that people are not so much looking for the meaning of life as much as they are the experience of being alive. Mm-hmm. And that's what you give him back to me. And what, what I heard was that by simply being with my brother, asking nothing in return, um, just giving of myself, he was able to reconnect to his authentic way of being mm-hmm. and truly like become alive again. And that's what I want for myself. And uh, those three moments have been the markers well, what of a, change. What a great gift that you gave Bobby yeah. there and, and, yeah. the, and that he was able to find his authentic self, you yeah. know, and now he's doing such amazing yeah, stuff. But what I love about every example that you just said, right, mm-hmm. from your father to Jules to Bobby, is that it all boomerangs back to what you said about connection, yeah. right, and bonds. Yeah. And you've got those back now yeah. with some of the most important people in your life. Yeah. I mean, my I mean, mom and my dad, my brother and my sister, yeah. they're everything to me. Yeah. And, you know, um, it's its that connection, reconnecting to that, to those truly meaningful bonds that allow me to have this sense that I am living, yeah. you know, in alignment with my authentic self. Yeah. I want to ask you a question, and this is this comes from Amy Mackey. Sure. She's, uh, as you know, uh, one of our Rescue 10X yeah, coaches. Yeah, I love Amy. <laughs> Amy's been deep in the trenches for, gosh, a good seven, eight years now with Engine 2. But her question is, how does someone overcome shame? Shame from overeating, shame from failing at goals, shame from letting down loved ones. Sure. Uh, Shame is crippling, right? And shame comes from a sense that there's something that you're doing wrong. And we have to understand that at all points in our lives, we're doing the best we can with what we know how to do. Sometimes we make it through life and it's really messy, Sometimes we make it through times in our lives and we're doing really well. Sometimes we crawl, sometimes we dance. But there's, I like to say there's no such thing as trial and error. There's trial and learning, right? The idea that, you know, I can look at myself and say, oh, you know, I should be ashamed of the way that I lived my life before. But I didn't know any other way to live as a healthy emotional or physical person. Mm -hmm. That's the only way that I knew how to make it through the day and be able to protect what I thought I needed to protect about myself. So once I accepted that, hey, you know what? I don't know any other way of doing it. And that's okay. I was finally willing to listen to what anyone else was willing to offer me in regards to help and say, okay, no matter how I feel about it, I'm not going to judge myself for feeling that way. I'm going to take what you have to say and I'm going to try it. If it works, I'll keep it. Mm. If it doesn't, I'll try something else. Once I stopped trying to be right all the time, I, I was able to make more change than I've ever made in my life. And it's because it's not about making who's right or who's wrong. It's not about making a point. It's about making a difference in yourself and how you move through the world. Once you stop caring about whether it's right or it's wrong or whether or not it's in alignment with how you want to move through the world mm-hmm. or it's not, the shame goes away. Mm. Because it's nobody's fault for ending up sick if they didn't know any better. 
Once you know better, you do better, the Maya Angelou quote, right? right? And no one's perfect. You can know better and you can try and you can, you, you, you can do well and things happen. The, the road that you start on does not have to be the road that you finish on. It certainly isn't for me. I don't believe it is for anybody. Don't judge yourself for feeling. Feeling is the most human thing any of us can do. Mm. It's a beautiful thing to feel. Mm. It's what unites humans. I know that the one thing I'm going to have com- in common with every human on the planet, regardless of race, re- regardless of age, gender, sexual preference, whatever, at the end of the day, we've all felt. And to live feelingly without judgment is the most incredible thing you can do. And that these feelings that we have are reasonable responses well, to life. Okay, I, 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 I love all of that. Okay. A lot. So for somebody that is listening right yeah. now, and they are feeling exactly mm-hmm. the way you used to yeah. feel, yeah. what would you say to them? Yeah, I would say, well, one, depending on what they're feeling, like, okay, so what, what do you think that those feelings are trying to tell you? You know, one recognize that those feelings that you have are completely healthy and completely human, Yeah. right? What are they trying to tell you about what you're disconnecting from? So, for example, someone could say, all right, why are you so angry all the time, Adam? What, when you were dealing with substance abuse, why are you so angry all the time? I'm angry because I was so, far, far, you know, so greatly disconnected from what mattered most to me. I was angry because I couldn't be with my family and just be with them. Mm. Okay, well, how can I do that? In order to do that, I need to start changing the way that I feel myself, change the way that I talk to myself, and not need to be right all the time. Because at the end of the day, no one cares who's right or who's wrong. They sure didn't care with me. You know, I was, my ego was running the show the first few weeks in, in rehab. I needed to be right, because if I was wrong, they were right, and I didn't want to be wrong. But once I stopped saying, I don't care, and once I started saying, I don't care about being right or wrong, and did what they said. So was that kind of letting go of your ego? It's huge. It's all about letting go of the ego. Ego is the biggest problem that people have when they're trying to make lifestyle change. Mm. Because we need to feel like we have an understanding of what we're doing. We need to feel like our future makes sense to us and we know how to get there in an effective way. And our ego tells us that no matter what's going on in our life, we got a handle on it. I know what I'm doing. And it's okay not to. Just let that go. And just focus on seven days. You know what? Maybe I don't know. I'm going to try this. I'm just going to try it. And I'll see what happens. We were having lunch the other day mm-hmm. at the Austin... Uh, ATX Food Company. ATX Food Company. The Thank best. you. Yes, it had, oh my gosh, had that yeah. bowl of the uh, goodness gracious. Yeah. It was amazing. But you, you reframed for me something about addiction yeah. that, that I've never quite heard it put that way. Yeah. Could you... Sure. Um, so, you know, what I do now, really, my passion is working with... Um, uh, addiction and uh, you know self-love and stuff like that and so you know we look at the addiction model that we have and um, there's a great book out there called uh, Chasing the Scream and another one called Lost Connections that really talks about what I'm about to talk about right now um, we have this idea that you know addiction is simply this you, you know look at the model you put a rat in a cage and you give it water and food or water laced with cocaine or heroin and once the rat tries the cocaine water, it will do this over and over again and it'll die. And so there you go. That's, that's addiction. That once you try it enough times, you're hooked and there you go, that's it. And then there's this uh, researcher in, in the 70s in Canada named Bruce Alexander. And he took a, lot, a look at this situation. He was working with uh, people with addiction at that time and he goes, well, hang on a second. They put this rat in an empty cage it has no choice but to do the, the food or the, co- or the uh, water with heroin. That's not anybody's 
situation, you know, so what he did was he created this experiment called Rat Park, where there was a rat and they had loads of other rats that they could do everything that, that gives a rat meaning in its life. They could have loads of sex, they had loads of food, there was colored balls they could play with, everything that would make a rat feel like it had a meaningful existence, and they had the, the drug water. And what he found in Rat Park was that they don't like the drug water. They almost never use it, none of them use it compulsively, and none of them ever overdosed. Huh. So the question is, is addiction less about your brain and more about your cage? Is it speaking more about the, the, our, ca- the cage we create for ourselves? Exactly. Mm. This disconnection from what's truly meaningful and how we you know, sort of craft this cage that we've been in that is too painful a place to live in. And so when the opportunity for us to escape that painful life presents itself in any form that gives you pleasure, like I said, there's no chemical hooks in gambling. There's no like actual chemical hook in gambling like there is in heroin or cocaine. But I guarantee you, there's a lot of people who are addicted to gambling. Yeah. A lot of people who are addicted to uh, shopping, to sex, to all these other things. But they're not addicted to the substance. They're addicted to the fact that they found something that allows them to escape this life that's too painful a place to be. Mm. That's mm. addiction. But what we're talking about, the other is dependency. If I were to take you, for example, and, and give you heroin every day this week, mm. and then take it away from you, there's a very good chance you would go through painful withdrawal. And if I were to offer you heroin to end that pain, you would know that heroin is going to further destroy your life. But the opportunity to end that pain is so great that you might agree to take it. And someone would look at you and say, oh, he's addicted to heroin. No, you're dependent upon it at this point. There's a huge difference between dependency and addiction. And I think that if we start to view addiction as what it really is, less about a dependency to chemical hooks and more about an adaptation to how we live our life that we're actually going to be able to help a lot more people. So you right now, every, I mean, every time I see you, you just seem like you're kind of on, on fire. You have all these exciting projects that you're, you know, you're working on. What, what's the most exciting thing that kind of gets you fired up every morning besides your bowl of oatmeal at 4.30 a.m. because you just can't wait to wake up to down that thing. I can't. Five o'clock's too late. <laughs> man, it's too long to wait, man. I, I love that. Um, I love that quote. Five o'clock is too, too long. <laughs> it's too long to wait, man. Why would I want to wait that long? Yeah. I can get up at 4.30. <laughs> I want to. That's the thing I want to say, you know. Uh, the reason why I've been able to do this continuously is because I want to. Right. Like, that's it. I've found a reason strong enough that's based in love, that makes me want to get up and do this every single day. Mm. Um, well, we just, we just need everybody to, to find that, yeah, you know, find that same reason to get up, you know, yeah. chow down the oatmeal and, uh, and, and kind of lead with love. Yeah. You know, people will say, you know, how, how, how big of a part of your journey is the self-love part? It's the whole freaking thing. But right now what I'm really excited about is um, I founded a nonprofit called Plant-Based for Positive Change. And the reason I did this was because I wanted to spearhead a research study uh, to study the effects of plant-based nutrition on addiction recovery. And so I partnered with the uh, health and science research team at Northern Arizona University. Um, and I partnered with a research, uh, no, sorry, a, rec- a recovery center here in Austin, Texas. And we're going to lead the very first randomized controlled trial to explore the effects of introducing a nutrient-dense plant-based diet into early addiction recovery. And amazingly, when we were developing the protocol, 
I'm working with one of my closest friends, Tara Kemp, on this. Mm. Um, what you do when you do a research study is whatever your outcome is, you go back into the research that, that exists and try to find the gold standard of what's the gold standard of, of outcomes and, and you know, what can we judge our results against? What did you find? There's never been a study done ever on any diet and its impact on early addiction recovery. This, I mean, if I was a betting man, yeah. I would say this will be a game changer. Yeah, I, I, I do too. And what's even more incredible is that doctors Dean and Aisha Sherzai yep. are partnered with me on this research study. What we're doing is we're, you know, we're going to be doing microbiome samples. We're going to be doing full lipid panels, adding, you know, inflammatory markers that we're going to study. We're doing uh, regular mood scores, anxiety, depression, obsessive compulsive drug use, mania. And what we're going to see this is a randomized controlled trial, so we're going to have the intervention group and the control group, both of them being measured the exact same way. Is we're going to see how changes in gut health and changes in inflammatory markers mm-hmm. relate to changes in mood scores mm-hmm. over the course of the early re- uh, addiction recovery mm-hmm. period, those first you know, 10 weeks to six months. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I mean, I, I think we know it's going to be profound because the data isn't there at all. So yeah. we're bringing the first data ever on it to the world. But I think what we're going to find is that it has a very significant impact. I can't wait to hear about yeah. it. So it's going to be amazing. Yeah. That's so huge that I would be getting up at 3.31 a.m. Yeah. <laughs> just to kind of, you know, make that happen. So Adam, I would love it if people could hang with you, hang with me, yeah. hang with the Engine 2 team. Our, our next immersion yeah. is going to be in Sedona, Arizona. Yeah. In, uh, in early October. Can you just say a few words about the immersion and, and, and why people should come? The immersion is a, like for me, it's a very special place. What it is is that it is an opportunity for you to really explore how you want to move through the world. Um, you're led by, you know, some of the greatest thought leaders out there, uh, you know, people like your dad, uh, your mom and your sister, yourself, of course. Dr. Uh, Michael Clapper. Dr. Michael Clapper. Doug Lyle. Doug Lyle. These people that had a profound impact on how I changed my life and I know have a profound impact on everybody who's attended an immersion. But there's, there is an energy at these immersions that is indescribable. Where What's so amazing is that people get there and they talk about their health issues. Right on the first day when we do that big yeah. circle up, we're like, you know, why are you here? In one minute, describe why you're here, where are you from, that whole thing. They talk about their health issues. They talk about people maybe that they've lost. But when they leave on that last night when we do it again, people talk about how they feel and this like, kind of awakening experience that they've had. And it's truly transforming in a way that is almost indescribable. Mm-hmm. And uh, I would like... I mean, I think it is maybe one of the most profound experiences I know that I've ever had and that probably a lot of these people have ever had there's there's something about the engine tour retreats yeah. that is just magic yeah to me the only thing that is more profound is watching what's happened to you over the uh, last over the last nine years grow into this true gentleman that, thank you. That, that is now doing so much good in this world and is connected yeah and created so many wonderful relationships well, good on you adam thanks i couldn't have done it without you yeah I mean, well peace Engine 2. Plant strong. Keep it plant strong. <laughs> Thanks for being on the Thank podcast. Thank you. My pleasure. All right. If you'd like to attend an Engine 2 immersion with Adam and the rest of the Engine 2 team, I want you to know that I would love nothing more than to spend a week with you. And like Adam said, witnessing the transformation that unfolds during these retreats 
has been one of the most rewarding experiences of my life since I've become an advocate for plant-based living. If you'd like to join us, visit engine2.com and click on events. I hope to see you in Black Mountain, North Carolina, or Sedona, Arizona. And please use the code PLANSTRONG for $100 off your immersion. I want to thank my co-creator of the podcast, Scott Battisill of 10% Media. Lori Kordowich, producer extraordinaire and director of Engine 2 Events. Amy Mackey, Engine 2's curator of creative content. Wade Clark with Bumble Media, our audio engineer. And Carrie Barrett for technical production. I have to thank my parents, Ann and Essie, who have been such guiding lights and inspirations over the years, as well as the great pioneers of this movement who have been pushing this boulder up the mountain. As they say, we are standing on the shoulders of giants. Remember, if you're digging the show, please rate us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. And with that, let me say, peace, engine two, keep it plant strong.